Good morning. Good morning. I want to thank you all for your warm welcome and to my, my good friend Mike for inviting me to be here and sharing his pulpit. Um, I am the son of a priest, so sometimes speaking from here is the most uncomfortable place for me to speak, even though I speak publicly often. Um, I, I was thinking, and I have been feeling this since I got to St. Louis uh, two days ago, that this is the first time I've ever been to St. Louis, uh, and it's the first time for me in the Midwest, and sometimes talking about El Salvador in the Midwest feels more distant. Uh, than it does when I talk about El Salvador and places where there are more Latinos or, or in other contexts. Um, but right off the bat, I've noticed similarities between the Holy Communion community and El Salvador. And some of them are real obvious, like today we heard uh, the lectures or the, the readings in Spanish, which reminded me of one of the, there was an old phrase from I think the Spanish King Ferdinand who said that uh, I talked to my advisors in English I talk to my wife in French, uh, I talk to my horse in German, and I speak to my God in Spanish. So I think that we've honored that tradition today, which is good. The other thing that I notice that's similar is the way that you all do the peace. You don't do the peace like normal Episcopalians. You get up and hug each other and say peace to each other and do it to every single one of you. And they do that in El Salvador too. So you share that with the Salvadoran people. And the third one, the reason that I, I was reminded of El Salvador while, while I was with you all recently, is that at the 8 o'clock service, I sat next to Mary. Do you know Mary? 93 years old, she says. Mary, the mother-in-law of Mark. Is Mark here still? No. And she reminded me of a matriarch who uh, received me in my first year in El Salvador uh, when I lived in a rural community. And at the time, I, before I went to El Salvador, I worked on trail crew in Glacier National Park. So that's like a tough guy job. It's, we walk around with 80-pound backpacks and we hike for 20 miles a day with chainsaws and things like that. And so when I got to this community in El Salvador, uh, every time we went out walking, obviously they were dirt roads with stones and things like that. But this older lady would grab my arm and insist on holding me while we walked down the street because that they were sure that it was the first time that I ever see, had, had seen a dirt road. Because for sure in the United States, all roads are paved. And you can imagine I was 22 or three years old and I had just got done with the trail crew thing. And I was like, lady, I could put you on my back and I could walk you down this road. And I was offended. So what is it? Mary this morning literally walked me through the liturgy uh, pointing out every step of the way as we went through the bulletin. She walked me up to the altar and she told me what was going to happen and she walked me back and she said, I'm glad that I sat next to you. And I said, me too. <laughs> and so maybe the difference really is that after 11 years I'm mature enough to be honored by the welcome. And I'm grateful for it and I'm grateful to you all for your welcome. I think, in fact, that is what today's gospel reading is about. Uh, I'm, I said this at 8 o'clock, but I and mentioned to you that I'm not the, I don't consider myself to be a priest. I would never want people to say, oh, are you going to be a priest like your dad? Um, and that always has been like the, the antithesis of what I was supposed to want vocationally. So I'm not a theologian like Michael. He went to a very good seminary. I know it. Uh, 
But today's gospel reading, I think it, it's helpful when we think about what our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, has been talking to us about. Uh, he's been saying that we need to become the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement. And he said that this is a really simple thing. It's just love God, love your neighbor. And so lately when I'm interpreting the gospel, I'm trying to do it through that simplicity. And so I try and listen for that essential gospel message in every reading, and I hear it. In this one, it's pretty obvious. Except that he's talking about not only loving our neighbor, but loving the others. The lepers, the leper Samaritans, which is even worse, I suppose. So it, it's a challenge. It's a gospel challenge uh, about how we're supposed to treat others. And for me, as a, as a human rights practitioner, and not necessarily a priest or a theologian, uh, this is a great parallel with our work. Because human rights, uh, for whatever you might think they are, is actually just something really simple. It's a conviction that we believe that because we were all born into the human family, everybody, every single human being is equal in dignity, rights, and worth. And so all other things, all other laws, all other actions should be derived from that very basic principle. And when we take these things seriously, this, this, this highest of commandments to love the other, to love our neighbor as if they were God, or to treat everybody as if they were truly equal to ourselves, it challenges us personally, because we have to become aware of the way that we discriminate, our own prejudices. It challenges us as communities, because we have to be able to be open and receive people who are different from ourselves. It challenges our countries as we consider what our immigration policies might be. And lately it's been a great challenge to the international community as we grapple with the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Today there are 65 million people displaced by violence in the world. And that's more than any time. And we used to say that it was more than any time since World War II, but we've surpassed the number of people displaced by violence uh, as they were during World War II. And Crystal saw one of the things that we've been involved with in the last year is advocating on the inter international stage for the humanitarian and refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere, the one emanating out of what we call the Northern Triangle of Central America. The Northern Triangle are the three countries immediately south of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And in those three countries in 2015, more than 17,500 people were killed. So as an indicator of a humanitarian crisis, the rate of violent death alone puts that on the scale of ma the major conflicts in the world today. Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan are the only countries that have higher rates of violent death. And so as we begin to consider how the world is obligated to respond to refugees around the globe, it's been important to raise the issue that this isn't something that's only happening across the ocean. We know that Syria was in the news and it has been the primary refugee crisis that sparked this global dialogue. But we have many of our brothers and sisters from Central America who are fleeing now, are fleeing because of violence. I was talking with our lead attorney a few weeks ago uh, and he's been, his principal job is to go and interview and document cases of people, families who have been displaced by violence. And I was actually, we were looking at the books kind of from an administrative point of view and realizing that we have no more money to help families 
leave the country, families who are facing persecution uh, and threats of death. And I said to him, well, do you think that we could ask the families to pay for a bus ticket to help contribute to, to the cost of travel? And he said, no, I don't think so because most of the people who come to us would have left the country already if they could have. He said to me that today I interviewed a family of people who live in a mud home with a dirt floor that they had dug out. So it became, the floor became a foxhole within their house so that they could sleep below the level of the ground in case at night somebody would come by and try and shoot them while they were in their homes. I mention this story because the issue of violence in El Salvador has threatened our narrative in America about immigration from the South. We assume that people come here because of jobs, but increasingly people are coming here because they fear for their lives. Crystal South, one of the first organizations to begin to build programs to assist people displaced by violence in El Salvador. And our goal is not to facilitate the exit of people, but to contribute to a national protection system so that one day Salvadorans won't be obligated to flee the country. We provide direct assistance and protection to families in emergencies. We offer food, humanitarian assistance, medical assistance, psychosocial assistance, and legal representation so the crimes that are committed against them are not left in impunity. We work with the Salvadoran government to build capacities of the state's protection uh, institutions so that they will begin to assist families displaced by violence. And we've worked collectively with other organizations in the region to strengthen the international protection programs within Central America so that Salvadoran families, when they leave the country, they can be treated as refugees and not illegal immigrants. Recently, I had an opportunity to accompany one of the families that we were providing assistance to. It was a small family of four, uh, a mother, an older father, uh, and a 16-year-old girl and her 14-year-old brother. The gang that controls the neighborhood where they live arrived at the door and said that we want the girl to become part of our gang. And when the family resists, the gang came back uh, and shot the mother and killed her wounded the daughter, Unfortunately, the son and the father were not at home at the time. While the girl was recovering in the hospital, they sent her a message that said as soon as she walked outside of the hospital, she would be eliminated. That was when the case was referred to Crystal South and they entered into our program. And we were able to help build their asylum claim so that they could get protection in another country in Central America. And I had the interesting opportunity uh, to travel with them as they left for the first time their country. And it was a day of a lot of new things for them. And it started really when we got to the airport. This is a poor family, and it was the first time that they had ever seen escalators. So we had to learn how to go up the escalator. It was the first time that they ever saw airplanes. And when it was time to go to the bathroom, I went with the, the two boys, the father and the, and the boy, to the bathroom. And they walked in, and they did a walk to the end of it, and did a little circle and walked back and said, what do we do? It was the first time they ever saw a urinal. We got on the airplane and we talked a lot about uh, flying, <laughs> what will happen when we land, the safety, the seat belts, uh, and then we landed. And we went and picked up our bags and they had one backpack between the two of them and we went and we got to the final security station and you could see the doors. Uh, 
and the father, you could see them where they were getting excited. And the father leaned over to me and he said, that's the exit, right? And I said, yeah, that's the exit. And he said, when we walk out of there, we'll be free, right? And I said, yeah. When you walk outside, you'll be free. And for them, that would be the first time in maybe years and definitely months that they would be able to walk outside and not be afraid that somebody or something might, ha might harm them or something might happen to them. After being months in hiding, it was the first time that they could walk outside and not fear persecution and death. And I bring this up because I think this helps to complete our narrative about what it means to receive the other. How many people are forced to leave their homes or are new to you or, and coming to your communities because what they're looking for fundamentally is freedom and safety. When we were in New York City in July, we were, I, had, I was invited to participate in the consultations leading up to the UN General Assembly's meeting in New York that happened in September where the international community was coming together to sign a global compact to address large movements of refugees and migrants. And we did the consultations and we gave feedback to the member states about what we thought was needed in order to uphold the international standards and protect people fleeing violence. Uh, and afterwards we were doing a debriefing with other civil society organizations and one of our African colleagues stood up and he said that we shouldn't be too excited or too disappointed about the outcome of the political document that will be signed in September. And he said that in the end, what will actually make a difference in the lives of people is the hyperactivity of the devoted. He said that the politicians will sign on the paper because we forced them to, but what will actually make a difference is our continued dedication to the cause of rights and safety of everybody. Meaning that if for the Jesus movement, for this principle of love thy neighbor to be real in our world, it requires the hyperactivity of the people who truly believe that. And I think that the people of the church are people who are called to that mandate. And I wanted to invite you all to contribute in this moment, this season where the world is wondering what to do about our unprecedented refugee crisis, your hyperactivity in favor of protection of the world's most vulnerable people. En el nombre del Padre, el Hijo, el Espíritu Santo. Amén.